Thank you so much. Good morning. And as we're starting a new year, we're returning to an older passage in the book of Daniel. And this ninth chapter now, as we are continuing our study in the book of Daniel, we paused, of course, for the Christmas season, takes you to a focal point of what's to come. It is highly focused upon the future and those final days. And I have been thinking and reflecting upon how to develop this in such a way that as we are entering into a new year, we at the same time are able to address issues and challenges that people face with regard to what is still to come, things that people are wrestling with as they look over this entire globe and ponder the clashes, the challenges in the Middle East and beyond. Our focal point in this ninth chapter is going to be verse 24, down through the end of the chapter. It is so rich, it is so condensed, and it is so complex that I'm going to give a panoramic view this morning, and then I'm going to return to this on a Sunday night in subsequent weeks and to deal with 24 down through the end of the chapter in a more comprehensive way so that we feel as though we are able to connect the dots, because there's a lot of dots here that need to be connected. But to give us a sense of what this is all about, let me begin reading with the 24th verse, because this will be our focal point where we're headed with these verses. As you and I are thinking about the beginning of 2015 and how this launches us towards, in fact, that final day still to come. We're in the 24th chapter now of Daniel's, 24th verse of Daniel's ninth chapter. Daniel writes, 70 weeks, or literally from the Hebrew, 77s are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin. To atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, to the coming of an anointed one, literally in the Hebrew, Messiah, or New Testament, Christ, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, or literally seven sevens. Then for 62 weeks, or literally 62 sevens, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, or sevens, if you will, an anointed one, literally from the Hebrew Messiah, shall be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be a war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make this one in the end times a strong covenant with many for one week, or literally from one seven final seven-year period, in other words. 
And for half of the seven, or literally for half of that seven-year time period, three and a half years, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, which is consistent with what Jesus said about the abomination of desolation still to come in Matthew 24, verse 15. So this abomination is set up in this future temple. Shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So, simple, right? And uh, straightforward. Well, we're going to, because of what you see here, what I find here with you, we're going to take a panoramic view this morning, see the big picture, and then what I'd like to do on a subsequent Sunday night is to narrow the focus and look at the details. Today is the forest. That Sunday night will be the trees in the forest so that we have a clear sense as a congregation as to what to anticipate with regard to future events. Let's look to our Lord and pray. And my Father, as we come before you on this Sunday in which people now are, in many cases, arriving back at their destinations, but at the same time, for us, students away from us, high school students that have chosen to be part of the district conference, what we're praying is that in this fluid time, where the holidays come to an end. And the first Sunday of this new year, that we have our sense of bearings with regard to what is ultimately and what's most crucially new. A new birth. Being a new creation in Christ. Out of all this study, Father, my prayer is that not on the basis of a pastor's opinions, not on the basis of global news, but on the basis of revealed truth. We have an inner conviction with regard to who Jesus is, what Christ has done, and that day when Messiah returns, and how all this fits together in your plan. Today, with the panoramic view in mind, what I'm praying is that with our ninth chapters of the book of Daniel, once again, that you will warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills. Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Leopold Kahn was a Jewish man who was born in 1862 in Hungary. His parents died when he was quite young, and he struggled. And he had to grapple with the big issues of life and put him on a journey of understanding God. 
Eventually, Mr. Kahn had reached a point in his studies where, through his training, he had become a rabbi. He had graduated with high honors in his Talmudic program of study. And as his synagogue began to expand and grow in Hungary, where these exiled Jews came together to ponder the significance of what does it mean to be a Jew in this hostile world, he wrestled with the problems as to why Jews were exiled from the land of Israel. But even more so, he struggled with the long delay of this coming Messiah. He said, quote, I believe with a perfect faith in the coming of the Messiah, and though he tarry, yet will I wait for his coming, unquote. And his biographer tells us that he would rise up in the midnight watches and sit on the bare ground to mourn over the destruction of the temple in Israel and pray for the hastened coming of his deliverer. Now, of course, these exiled Jews had not seen Jesus as Messiah, and so they were still awaiting what they thought would be the first coming, what you and I view as second coming. So as time went on, he continued to invest his efforts in his studies, and as the synagogue grew and was having impact upon that region, Hungary, he wrestled all the more with the question, why does the Messiah tarry? When will he come? He moved from his studies of the Talmud into the Old Testament and focused his attention on the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel. And when he opened Daniel 9 and began to read, it seemed as though a light began to come on in the midst of the darkness of his heart, of his mind, of his soul. And he began to ask questions of other rabbis in Hungary and in Eastern Europe with regard to how Daniel chapter 9 fits into this whole idea of the Messiah. And they began to caution him. They were worried that he was heading down a track that they did not want him to travel. Eventually, one of them said sarcastically, if you're looking for the Messiah, you might as well head to New York in the United States of America. You'll probably find him there. And you know what? He made his way to Brooklyn. There were Jews, as you know, even today, Brooklyn is very Jewish. New York is intensely Jewish. And as he arrived on the scene, he was still meditating upon the book of Daniel in particular, when lo and behold, he came walking past a sign written in Hebrew announcing a meeting for Jews. What struck him was that sign, though written in Hebrew, was over the door of a church. What a strange combination, he thought. 
a church with meetings for Jews. While he stood there, a fellow Jew grabbed him by the arm, tried to pull him away. He said, there are apostates in there. But he continued, Rabbi Kohn did, to examine the scriptures and to try to understand who this Messiah truly is. And then as he began to connect the dots, he realized that Jesus Christ is Messiah. Jesus Christ has already come. And when he read in Matthew, in the opening page, that this is the book of the generation of Yeshua, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the light went on. He put faith and trust in the one who came and yet will come again. And as a result, led countless people to faith in Jesus Christ throughout New York City. And in 1930, was honored with a doctorate, an honorary doctorate from Wheaton College, my alma mater. Daniel 9 is rich. Daniel 9 is prophetic. Daniel 9 is profound. And if you and I are watching, looking, examining carefully, what we're going to find is that Jesus is in these verses. And I want to consider these verses with you. And I want to consider them in light of what's coming our way, present, future. Three considerations as we're looking ahead not only through 2015, but on into the future, that I think have direct bearing based upon what's here. And the first consideration flows out of verse 1 and 2, that as we look ahead, I want you to consider with me the preparation that God desires of us. The preparation God desires of us. It's the preparation of studying God's word, preparing our hearts for what's still to come. Daniel is now exiled. He is roughly around the age of 82 or 83 years of age. We are told here that in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Now, Daniel is around 82, perhaps 83 years of age. He has developed his spiritual disciplines but he is not living off his studies of the scriptures of the past. And though a prophet, and he has had opportunity to process many visions from the Lord through the years, he's not living off the capital of the visions of the past. What amazes me about this man is that he is still steeped and stooped in God's word that 82, 83 years of age, having counseled kings, 
having been a political force throughout the land, having stood up and stood out, having endured the challenges of the lion's den and so on. Here's a man still in his own private, everyday devotional life. He's meditating on God's word. Because what you and I find here is that less than a century prior, Jeremiah had penned words with regard to the situation that Daniel found himself in. You and I are told here that he's focused on the word of the Lord to Jeremiah in the second verse. These words that must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem. So what particular verses would he have been focused on? There are two verses that come to mind from Jeremiah. They'll appear on the screen. And I want you to look for the italicized word each time. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Seventy years. He is roughly now in his 69th year of captivity within that land. The clock is ticking. The 70 years are about up. God has ordained that these people now be returned to their promised land. And he will use a secular king to issue an edict to send the Jews back to their promised land. God is sovereign and can use even unbelievers to make decisions so that God's people move in the direction that God would have them go. What stands out to me here is that Daniel is praying. And even though he is pondering and processing and seeking insight from God, At age 82, 83, he still has a hunger and he has a thirst to know more. Do you? Or are you simply living off your devotional life of prior years and the Sunday school lessons of the past? A second passage stands out of Jeremiah 29, verse 10. Look again. And for thus says the Lord, when 70 and its italicized years are completed for Babylon... I will visit you and I will fulfill you to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And so now Daniel is reflecting and he's processing and he's thinking as he takes the timeless truths and apply them in a timely way. Now likewise, as we start this new year, you take the timeless truths and you apply them in a timely way as you watch what's happening, events globally, nationally, regionally, and so on. Twice now in those verses you've seen appear on the screen 70. The number of years that had been ordained for the Jews to be in exile because they had broken God's law with regard to sabbatical years. A sabbatical year was every seventh year where the land was to lay rest. And so the penalty was 70 years of captivity. And now and now the clock is running down. What's gonna, God going to do next? And if you're looking globally and you feel like the clock is running down, you need to be asking, what is God going to do next? 
what we need to do is to cultivate within our home lives, personally, family-wise, congregationally, a tremendous discipline in our preparations that God desires for us. As we prepare for the tomorrows of life, we need to bring scriptural insight into our lives so that we are operating by insight and not merely by eyesight. Dr. Howard Hendricks was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary and recalls a time in which a professor in his life in the past had had an impact upon him. Howard had passed the house many a time at night, seen his professor late at night, a lamp on his desk studying. And in the early morning hours would come by and see a lamp on See his professor studying. And so one day he asked him, Professor, I'd like to know what is it that keeps you motivated, that keeps you studying? You never cease to learn. I love the answer. He said, Howard, I would rather have my students drink from a running stream than from a stagnant pond. Are you drinking from a running stream or a stagnant pond? If you're a parent, are you giving fresh water to your family from a running stream? or stagnant pond. Eighty-two, maybe eighty-three. It's possible to grow old and not grow up. Daniel's growing old, but Daniel's growing up. And he gives of himself to the word of God to understand this world of God's. And so should we. Let the word be the lens through which you look at the world. So as we look ahead, number one, I want you to consider with me as we start this new year, the preparation God desires. He desires for us to prepare our hearts in his word, developing scriptural insight so that we're prepared then to examine what comes through eyesight, not vice versa. Now, once you and I have done that, here's a second consideration. Number two, as we look ahead, I want you to consider with me the prayer that God honors. And I want you to notice how scriptural insight leads to prayerful intercession. In verse 3, then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy. Here he is at this latter stage of life, and notice his intense devotion still before God. Sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord God, my God, see how personal that is? And made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love and those who love him and keep his commandments. 
when you and I examine now the prayer life of this man, and I want you to be examining your prayer life as well, notice how he begins. We start with our worship of God in verses 3 and 4. As you are looking for traction, because sometimes it's hard to pray, we become so easily distracted. I think we're easily distracted if we start with ourselves. But when you begin to think about God and his nature, there's a grip now that begins to get a hold of your mindset. And it is gripping Daniel's mind. And our worship of God is such that he sees God's sovereignty as his starting point, which is going to be absolutely necessary in order to understand what's unfolding in the course of what's still to come, which is the same for you and the same for me as well as we look at the events of the times in which we live. Our worship of God. But then secondly, our confession of sin. In verse 5 onwards, notice how many times he utilizes the word we. doesn't say them. doesn't say you. doesn't say him or her. He brings himself into this equation of the sinfulness of humanity. Notice all the plurals where he incorporates himself in verse 5. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. Look at verse 6. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets. Look at the beginning of verse 7. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, it's a plural, open shame. Verse 8, it begins, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame. Now, when you and I are deeply burdened, and we want to cultivate now, how to take the insights from God's Word and shape our intercession for family members, for loved ones, for co-workers, for congregation, for nation, for this world. We start with God, not with self. Our worship of God leads then to an awareness of who God is, and now we become aware of who we are. We confess our sins before Him, and we're better prepared to bring in a sense of us into the whole matter. We become aware of our sinful nature. Stan Telchin did. Stan Telchin was a, a Jew who became a Christian. Tell us the story of his pilgrimage. He became anguished when he saw that his 21-year-old daughter had put faith and trust in Jesus as Messiah, jolted the tranquility of their home, And so he began studying the Bible in an effort to refute everything that his daughter believed. Just using his Old Testament. But as time passed, he became a believer. As did his wife and their other daughter. And interestingly enough, all came to faith independent of each other. You ever think somebody is outside the arm reach of God? Think again. He wrote, 
As a Jew, I am even more sensitive to the teachings of Jesus, who was born a Jew, lived as a Jew, chose others as Jews, as his disciples, loved the Jewish people as his disciple. Today, I know that he is more concerned about the attitudes of our hearts than the religious actions we perform. In relations with members of my family and friends, I am to remain consistent, never turning my back on my heritage, on my ancestry, on Israel, or upon them. And such is the case with Daniel as well. Now here he is, exiled, and he's far from home. And Maybe you have loved ones who are geographically, such as in the military and so on, or off to school, heading back now at the end of Christmas break, And it seems as though there's some distancing from roots and from spiritual influences that you long for. But bear in mind, God's got a long arm. But as we pray, we don't start with self. Now, you take your preparations in God's word. Let the timeless impact the timely. The preparations produce scriptural insight. And the preparations that produce scriptural insight lead then to this second category, prayer, which involves, which involves prayerful intercession. And once you find yourself now confessing sin corporately, collectively, not isolating yourself from others, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, then... What do we do next? Pick it up in 14. Therefore the Lord has ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works he's done. We have not obeyed his voice. He's looking back, and so should we. And remember all that God has done in the past. And then in verse 15, and now, see how contemporary he gets? O Lord our God. And now he ties past to present. Who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and has made a name for yourself. As at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. What does he do with all this? We need need a third element. That after our worship of God in 3 and 4, followed by our confession of sin in 5 through 13, We need our plea for mercy in 14 through 19. And I want you to have your heart gripped, in particular, by verse 18. I've got it heavily underlined. Oh, my God. Incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations on the city that is called by your name. Here it comes. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness. But because of your great mercy. You and I are dependent on that mercy. When Solomon Ginsburg, a Jew, became a believer... He sensed God leading him to Brazil to share the gospel there. Found a tremendous number of people in Catholicism that were committed to a a form of religiosity, but lacked that sense of the inner heart. 
shared the gospel, and there were those that attempted to assassinate him. There was more than one that was hired to take his life, even while he was speaking from pulpit. Don't get any ideas this morning. One such assassin was Antonio Silvino. One night he knocked at Ginsburg's door. Ginsburg, convinced this was the end, whispered a final prayer, went to the door, only to discover that this supposed assassin who had planned to kill him while he was speaking had been so convicted by the message earlier that day, he was unable to do so, and now he was at the door seeking mercy. Which was the appeal that that Ginsburg had made in his message of that day. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Now, once you've done that, you are building traction now, and you are allowing the past to connect with the present, but the present propel you into the future. Because here now is your third consideration. That thirdly, as we look ahead, I want you to consider with me the promise that God makes, beginning in verse 20 down through verse 27. Gabriel appears on the scene. Even while... Even while Daniel was praying, in verse 21, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift light at the time of the evening sacrifice. That's three in the afternoon on the Jewish calendar. And even though he's in Babylon, he's still following the calendar. Close to 70 years later of exile. And he's still committed to the timing and the timeline of God. What a devotional life. In verse 23, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Can you imagine hearing a messenger from heaven saying you are greatly loved? What a powerful description. Therefore, he says, consider the word Understand the vision. And that's why week by week by week we maintain the spiritual discipline. We consider the word, which is what we're doing right now. Understanding what's here. What I want you to see now, and I'm going to ask you to stay, stay with me in these final moments. This is complex. This has produced a myriad of writings through the years, these remaining verses. I'm giving you the panoramic view this morning and then a a more concentrated presentation based only on verse 24 and following on a subsequent Sunday night. It pertains to the future. I'm going to draw out five elements now, beginning in verse 24. We'll take our time but measure our time as we go here in these remaining minutes. Stay with me. Let's be thorough. Seventy weeks, or literally from the Hebrew, seventy-sevens are decreed about who? 
your people, Jews, your holy city, Jerusalem. Stop right there. Notice, first of all, with me, the 77s. And ask yourself, where does this come from? Did you notice how God had already been noting this devotional life of Daniel and how Daniel had been meditating in verse 2 on the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So now we will take this as years, and as we take this as years, we know that the Israelites had violated the sabbatical laws of God. Every seventh year, the land was to lay at rest. And so out of that then, there was an exile of 70 years, one for each violation of sabbatical law. God is timing his response. Notice, second of all, with me, there is a series of statements, each of which begin with a little word, too. I'm going to call these the six to-dos. When my father, somewhere before I got up on a Saturday morning, uh, wanted to beat me to the punch, he'd put up my to-do list up on the refrigerator. And you probably do the same thing if you're a parent. And if you're a student here, you wake up and you look at that fridge and you know what's already being planned out for you for the day. In fact, last time I was home, he still had a to-do list on his fridge. This is God's to-do list for humanity. But the Jews in particular, do you see what's coming here? Look for each one of these. The first of these to-dos, to finish the transgression It indicates a call for a complete end to all transgression. Because sins continue to take place subsequent to Christ's death and resurrection, it refers to what's still to come. Second to do, to put an end, you see here, to sin. The third to do, to atone. For iniquity, this word atone carries with the idea of ransoming or delivering by a substitute. That is Messiah who died for our sins. A fourth to do, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Deals with time and eternity. Doesn't say universal righteousness, otherwise it means everybody gets saved. No, we are declared righteous when we put faith and trust in the one who came to die in our place, Jesus. A fifth to do. You and I see it here. To seal up. To seal both vision and prophet. This deals with Messiah. The sixth, to anoint a most holy place. It doesn't say to anoint the most holy place. It's an indefinite article at this point. 
So without the article, I can point to sacrifices, lands. It could also point, furthermore, to a new temple built after exile, or even one still to come, question mark. Here now is a third observation. I want you to notice with me, thirdly, as you and I are examining this, the three divisions of time. Know, therefore, he says this. Understand. You and I are to know. You and I are to understand the threefold divisions. That from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, literally from the Hebrew Messiah, comma, a prince, there shall be seven weeks or literally 770s, which comes to 490 years, which began with the decree of Artaxerxes, where he sent the people to rebuild Jerusalem. But then you continue on for 62 sevens, which leads us on into the future. And then... For 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and mold, but in a troubled time. And here becomes the question that people continuously discuss, Bible students grapple with. That's why I said we've got to concentrate here. It's the word after. Some see a gap here. Others don't. Your senior pastor sees a gap here. The question is how long? So you have said there is 177 followed by 62 sevens. So now that gets us 7 plus 62 to 69. After the 62 sevens, an anointed one, you and I are told here, shall be cut off, verse 26. Here's your fourth observation. Notice the anointed one. Draw a line from the first part of verse 26 back to verse 25 where it spoke of an anointed one, a prince. I believe that the anointed one spoken of here, Hebrew word Messiah, is the same one that you and I saw as the Son of Man in Daniel 7.13 who will return in triumph after he suffered his death and his resurrection. But I see a gap. There's something more still to come. That final day awaits. And here it is in the second part of verse 26. And the people of the prince who is to come, whom I take to be the Antichrist, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant, this Antichrist. This one who fifthly now appears on the screen, the prince who is to come. He shall make a strong covenant in that final seven-year period with many for one week. In other words, he's saying... I enter into a covenant with the Jewish people at that point. 
But then somewhere in the middle of that seven-year period, he breaks covenant. She'll put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. And didn't Jesus Christ himself speak of this very fact? We're in Matthew chapter 24. And in verse 15, had stated to his disciples, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, isn't that exactly what Daniel longed for? To understand. But then we're back to Daniel 9 in the last verse, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator, And now what you find, and I find here, is that our sovereign God reigns and brings all things to a finale for his glory. And as I've been studying this, and I said, I'm giving you the panoramic this morning, and we'll deal with more detail on a Sunday night and subsequent Sunday night to come. I was thinking about Jews and Jewish Christians in particular, and my mind went back to... uh, dialogue that Larry King had on CNN. He had a program, Larry King Live, and Larry King is Jewish. And he wanted to interview Diane Cannon. Diane Cannon is Jewish, and Diane Cannon is a Christian. She came to know Jesus as her Lord, as her Messiah. Famous actress, now in her 70s. And he wants to know, how on earth did you come to put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Messiah? She said, my father, he became a Christian, a strong Christian. So how did this affect you? Well, she said, my father promised my mother that I would still be raised in a Jewish tradition. And he kept his promise as best he could. One of the greatest men I've ever known. But every week on the way to the synagogue, he'd lead us in singing, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. And she said, and that wasn't too popular in the synagogue. But God has a way of breaking in. Breaking into synagogues and breaking into families and breaking into this world and sending his son, Jesus, to die for our sins. And that's why a rabbi, Kun, could make his way by the work of the Holy Spirit to New York. Put his faith and trust in Yeshua, Jesus, as his Messiah. And all that ministry today is chosen people ministries. Having a global impact. And one of their leaders was actually speaking on the platform in the sanctuary just last year. Sharing how all this fits together. On a subsequent Sunday night, we'll continue to work on how all this fits together.
But make certain you put your faith and trust in Jesus. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Let's stand together. You can bring Jesus into a synagogue. My word, you could break into a mosque. You can break into the home of an atheistic, hardened family. You're sovereign. And you present who you are in the work of Jesus Christ in unmistakable terms to allow us to see how past, present, and future all fit together and how the first and second comings of Jesus Christ fit together. And it's all for your glory. So as we start this new year, Father, and even as students will be returning this afternoon, I pray that there is such a glow developing in our hearts. We want to take which is timeless and share it in a timely way so that people know that Jesus loves them. The Bible tells us so. It's real. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.